Nowadays, we're almost numb to the idea of mass shootings in America. Kids have active shooter drills in schools, hiding under desks to practice for the possibility of a real shooter terrorizing the classrooms. Teachers have entire sets of emergency protocols to follow for the specific instance in which an armed monster invades their building. And it's not just limited to schools, concerts, movie theaters, houses of worship. They can all be a target at any time. Nowadays, that's just how it is. But that wasn't always just how it is. There was a time when people hearing multiple gunshots would automatically assume it was just a car backfiring. When they would step into the street to see what was going on, rather than automatically running for cover or a weapon of their own. But unfortunately, there's a first time for everything. And that first time was a day in September 1949. A day that would have been just another calm, mundane day in the neighborhood if it weren't for one man with a gun. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm hopped up on Diet Mountain Dew. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week to bring you your weekly dose of historical true crime because the good old days weren't always so good. Scott, I don't feel like you get enough credit for having come up with that. That's, Aww, that's thank you. That's a damn good tagline. It really is. It just suits. Thank you so much. I know it doesn't seem like it, but I put an awful lot of work into the show. <laughs> You do. You really do. We all do. So, yes, thank you for coming up with that. And, yes, we are here with your historical true crime. First things first, real quick. Don't forget about our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, where you can come for weekly bonus episodes and monthly what we're calling morning edition, because sometimes we hit up the old-timey newspapers. But, guys, I'm not going to tell everybody what we have in store for next month yet. I'm just going to let the anticipation linger because it's going to be so good. Can we do the anticipation like they do in Rocky Horror Picture Show? You can if you want. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, come see what we have there for $5 a month. You can get those episodes. And don't forget to review us on whatever platform you use. If they allow reviews, rate, subscribe. It really, really, truly helps us become more visible, which helps us be able to bring you more and more and more thorough old-timey crime. So, all that said, let's talk about Howard Unruh, shall we? What a fucking last name, first off. Secondly, I had a hell of a time like doing research on old Howie here because there's a band called Unruh. They, oh, gosh. And they do a lot of songs about mass shooting. Really? I, I think maybe they might be named after him. Just, just, just a thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, spring Jack. There's a band called spring Jack that makes fucking research damn near impossible. Stop it. Musicians, just stop it. You're not being fucking clever. Yes, please. You're just making our lives harder. Yeah. So Howard Unruh was from East Camden, New Jersey. He was born in 1921. He had one younger brother. And 
their parents split at some point. It's not really clear exactly when they separated, but they did not divorce. In 1939, he graduated from high school, and he, according to his yearbook, intended to go into government work. That didn't quite happen. He worked for two years as kind of like a shop boy for a typesetter from 39 to 41. Yeah, he would he would run errands, and he would also drop some of the type and bring people letters and stuff, I guess, like actual like physical metal letters. <laughs> so. Here's a T. <laughs> I wanted an R, damn it. God damn it. <laughs> now I ha- now the CPAP machine is going to be called a crap machine because you <laughs> fucked up and got the wrong letters. Unra. Beautiful. Maybe that's how he got his last name. Yeah. <laughs> then in 1942, with World War II raging, he went into the Army, and he ended up in an armored field artillery division. He was shipped overseas to the Rhineland and was on active duty over there for a while, during which time he got three medals. He was in, he saw so much action. He was in battles in Germany, Belgium, Italy, France, Austria. He saw action in the war. Yeah. (laughs) Which is weird because if he saw action in Italy, so did my dad. So it's kind of this weird thing of like, yeah, my dad and him could have crossed paths. Yeah, they could have. That's crazy. Yeah. But did they cross the streams? I don't know. My dad was kind of... <laughs> uh, my dad was not the kind of man that Unruh would have hung out with. <laughs> let, me tell you a little, yeah. let me tell you a little quick story about my dad in Egypt. Scorpions are a big problem in Egypt, as one can imagine. So my dad was marching, and he took a clothespin... And he clipped it to the earlobe of the guy in front of him and went, Scorpion! Like, while they were marching. The dude freaks out and slaps the clothespin. My dad didn't intend it. But the dude's earlobe ripped off. Oh, my God. Right? And went flying. They never found it. But the dad, the guy thanked my dad profusely because, man, that stinger must have been in deep, shorty. It was, that took, that took the bottom part of my ear off. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Okay, so now we know why Scott's an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Genetics. Some, some mysteries being solved right here on Old Timey Crimey. To my credit, I have never cost one, even a portion of a body part from another person. Yeah. I'm missing a few, but... <laughs> Well, Unruh's commanding officers said that, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't really Scott's dad's kind of, you know, hanging out buddy. He was just a quiet dude. He didn't have any real vices like drinking or women. In his spare time, he'd just be reading his Bible or writing letters to his mother, very long letters. But he also said that Unruh was a crack shot. This guy could really work a gun. The actual, he, the actual line is... Uh, from his uh, section chief, Norman Cohen, uh, his hobby was guns and his marksmanship was deadly. You know, I didn't catch that his commander was yeah, also no a relation. Cohen. No, no relation, because... spelled differently. Uh, oh, okay. The, the way that uh, his section chief, Norman E. Cohen, it is spelled, and in honor of the military, I'm going to do this slightly military style, Kilo, Oscar, Echo, Hector, November. Okay. All right. Because another funny thing was the 
eventual prosecutor was also named Cohen. So yes. it's just the story is just littered with Cohen's and different spellings. So they're everywhere. They're everywhere. You can't shoot Apparently. a gun without hitting three or four of them. Yeah. Oh. oh. Foreshadowing. He uh, he did also keep a diary of the Germans he'd killed, and then in 1945 he received an honorable discharge. This is like no one saw this fucking coming. He's he doesn't do anything to relieve pressure. He spends all of his time reading the Bible and writing long letters to his mother and keeps a diary of the of the men that he's killed. No one saw this fucking coming. Yeah, apparently everybody's super like, this should end well. Detailed diary. Super <laughs> detailed. Like this man is like one step away, in my professional opinion, one step away from having like a necklace made out of ears. Yeah, yeah. Well, after but, his time go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say about the, the notes on every German he killed, he would mark down the day, hour, place, and when circumstances allowed, describe the corpses in bloody, disturbing detail. And the uh, yeah. like, like I, I want to admit, like at the end of each one, I want him to do like half chub, three quarters chub, fully erect, you know, just. <laughs> he might have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he very well might have. Got to yeah. get my hands on those. That could be the disturbing detail yeah. right there. <laughs> After he left the service, he had a job for about seven months uh, at which he was making $26 a week, which translates in today's money to 346 a week. Then he ended up, he, he moved up some. He went to a company that stamped metal parts for Fords and he doubled his salary, $52 a week. So not you know, not shabby. And then he, he seemed to have this idea of, of bettering himself. He did a, a college preparatory school in 47 and 48. And then after that, he attempted to go to Temple University in Philly. Uh, he wanted to get into pharmacy work and he was going there on the GI Bill, but he really, he only lasted about three months. And then that was pretty much the end of that. And so he had no job at this time and really hadn't been trying for one and was, was unemployed. He was getting, he, he did have his veterans assistance and he was selling off his collection of model trains, but that's, you know, not a lot. So he's living with his mother naturally. I'm sure you couldn't have seen that coming. Mother. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh Lord. And of course, the father not really around much. And his mother, it depends on the source. She's either Rita or Frida. I'm going to go with Rita. She was basically the sole provider for their, their little household and worked at the Evanson Soap Company, uh, packing soap. Now, they lived in what the New York Times described as, quote, a drab little three-room apartment at the shabby gray two-story house at the corner of River Road and 32nd Street. And... Some locals' opinions would come out that kind of didn't really mesh exactly with what his his officers said when he was in the military. He was people thought he was kind of a weirdo. He was kind of withdrawn, and lots of people called him a mama's boy. He was also he kind of gay. Yes, that was one thing that that There's some people no kinda would say about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, 
uh, especially I think there were a couple of neighborhood uh, like late teenage age boys who were, were teasing him a lot there. And so that he, he wasn't enjoying that, obviously. Uh, he read the Bible a lot. Uh, the prophecies in particular, that that never ends well. I mean, not just the prophecies, but the reading of them and being obsessed with them is bad news. I have a quote from one guy who said, he was a quiet one, that guy. He was all the time figuring to do this thing. You got to watch them quiet ones. Mm-hmm. And even his own family agreed, like, that after he came home from from the war, he was moody, he was jumpy, he was out of it. So thing, things not going too well there. His younger brother was doing fine. Uh, his younger brother, James, I think I, that, that was, worked for uh, a publishing company. He was married. He was three years younger, and he seemed to be doing, like, lived off on his own with his wife, doing doing pretty well. But meanwhile... Unru's just at home. He's 28 years old. He's just reading his scripture and shooting his guns. And when I say shooting his guns, I mean he kind of set up a shooting range in his cellar. That's that's the way you do it. That's the way. But you know what? The ceiling was so low, so he could only shoot from either like kneeling or laying down. So wait, it's not a cellar, then it's a crawl space. It's probably one of those old root cellars because they had really low ceilings. Like. Marcus could walk in it comfortably, but no adult human really could. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Marcus is shorter than me. Yes, he is. Uh, not a lot of people can say that and not be called like dwarfs. <laughs> so Unru seemed to have some conflicts with his neighbors, the Coens. Now, this was Maurice Cohen, who was 41. He ran a pharmacy. Uh, from like the the pharmacy was on the lower floor and the, the family lived above. He had his wife, Rose Cohen. She was 38 and they had two sons, Leonard, 18 and Charles, 12, as well as living with them was uh, his mother, Maurice's mother, Minnie Cohen, who was 64. And this conflict really, it, it had a couple other areas where it centered, but it really centered around the gate between their yards. Unru would use this gate to go back and forth, and he would leave the gate open. That caused some problems. And also, it, apparently, he would have his radio on at night, and they weren't happy with the volume. So there's definitely some, some tension in this neighborhood. And his mother actually had her friend build a little gate that connected from another neighbor's yard so that Howard could use that and not have to worry about going back and forth and and leaving the gate open and pissing off the Coens even more. And that actually happened. The gate was finished building on September 5th, 1949, just after Unru left to go to Philly to see uh, to go to the movies now, he was actually supposed to be on a date with a guy, but he was late. He missed his date, so he just sat there and watched a bunch of movies. So he's at the movies. This gate is just being finished. And really, his mother wasn't just worried about the tension in the neighborhood. She was worried about Unru's anger. She was worried that he was going to, he was developing this grudge against the neighbors, and he was going to take his anger too far. 
Unruh, and he was kind of a, like, he was a scary looking dude. I want you to picture like a side of ham, and then somebody tries take, to take a hammer and sculpt the likeness of Adam Carolla. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good description. That's really good. Yeah. So he's at the movies, and he goes ahead, even though he's, he missed out on his date, he stays to watch the movies. Two of the movies that we know he watched, I don't. it was a double feature. I don't know if this double feature played throughout the evening because he stayed longer and he stayed through and watched them multiple times or if he saw other movies. And he didn't know either, but he saw I Cheated the Law and I have the synopsis from IMDb. A lawyer, Tom Conway, defends a gangster, Frank Bercola, on a murder charge and gets him acquitted. Campbell later finds out that Bercola was actually guilty. But since he cannot be tried again on the same charge, Campbell devises a way of pinning another charge on Bercola. Once he gets him in court, he tricks the gangster into revealing his crooked ways. And really, the only familiar name to me in this movie was Barbara Billingsley. She was June Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver. And one hot, hot piece of ass. <laughs> I'm sure Beaver thought so, too. Uh, <laughs> that is a weird sentence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Mrs. The Cleaver, other... you got an ass that will not quit. Ward doesn't, doesn't deserve you. <laughs> the other movie playing in the double feature was called The Lady Gambles, and the synopsis is much less detailed than I Cheated the Law. A desperate husband tries to find help for his wife suffering from addictive gambling. That's it. Hmm. But it did feature Robert Preston and Barbara Stanwyck. Oh, man. I thought we were going for more hot Billingsley action. <laughs> no, this is the other Barbara, Barbara Stanwyck. Stanwyck and... Unru later said that he he went back and forth a little bit. Sometimes he said it was when he came home from the movie. Sometimes he said it was while he was watching the movie. But he said that Stanwyck in particular inspired him because she looked like Rose Cohen, the wife of the pharmacist and, you know, the matriarch of the, the family that he's having trouble with. And so he ends up, he gets there at like 7.30 or something. And he, and he doesn't, you know, he leaves around 2. He doesn't get home until 3 a.m. And then later I, he's. I was going to say, I do have a theory as to why he stayed so long. So he missed his hookup. But that was actually a really popular and well-known gay pickup spot. So it was, it was almost like a gay bar back then. That they would all go to this movie theater on Market Street. And that's where they would meet each other. So he might have just been looking for like a different hookup. That's a really good point. Yeah, he might have just been like, well, first one didn't pan out. Maybe something else will pop up. Pop up. Um, I ain't getting my <laughs> dick sucked, so people got to die. <laughs> I don't even know if it was that, really. I really don't think it was, honestly. But anyhow, we'll, my, I'm sure we'll, we'll have my plenty gates, of time to talk motive. My gate's missing. Somebody got to die. Yeah, that's kind of what it is. No. Um, so, yeah, he, he's later asked in interrogation, what movie he saw. And he can't give them any titles, anything. The only thing he can tell them is that Barbara Stanwyck wasn't one of them. That's it. So that Stanwyck connection really seemed to um, inspire something. I stopped myself from saying trigger something. I stopped it. <laughs> but I told you about it, and I ruined myself stopping it. Whatever. You, you shouldn't have. You should have went with that. It's It's a good pun. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I know. Sometimes I have regrets, but so he goes home. 
when he goes home, this new fence gate that was supposed to be installed appears to be missing. It's been torn out. And so he goes to bed and later he confessed that as he was drifting off to sleep, he decided that the next day he was going to take care of these issues we had. He had with not just the Coens, but a whole bunch of other people in the neighborhood. He he said that everybody was talking bad about him behind his back and to his face. And that included not only Cohen, the pharmacist, but also the barber, the cobbler, the tailor. I mean, it sounds like we're going to go with the candlestick maker next. I know. Yeah. Right. I love and the fact he, that they probably were. They probably. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Yeah. The man looks like a sliced ham and he's, his breath smells like penis. It's, it's so weird. Oh, I did mean to mention on the Stanwyck connection, I actually got a picture of Barbara Stanwyck and put it side by side with a picture of Rose Cohen. Doesn't look Yikes. anything like her, does it? No, I can see it. You I can, can totally see, see it? it? It depends on the angle of the picture you, you pick, I think, of Stanwyck. If you pick like ones where she's head on, you don't see it as much. Okay. But then the other thing is that when I look at Rose Cohen, I also see the uh, like a very much a similarity to my friend Susie who doesn't look anything like Barbara Stanwyck. So it's very much like what's happening here. I don't know, but I do have those side by sides and we'll get those up on the social media because it's definitely interesting to see the similarities or differences. And I'm, I'm interested to see what our, our listeners think. If you, you know, our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, old timey crimey on all of them, come over and let us know if you see the similarity that I do, or if you completely disagree with me and think I'm an idiot, I'm fine with either. So as he's drifting off to sleep, he decides he's going to take care of all these neighborhood issues in the morning around 9.30 a.m. because then everybody will be in their, in their businesses. So, Tuesday, September 6th, 1949. He gets up. His mom makes him breakfast, uh, which is post-toasties with milk and sugar, as well as fried eggs. Let's blame the post-toasties people. Absolutely, 100%. And his mom does go out to see a friend, but there was actually, they had a little confrontation that morning after breakfast. Give me a second because I, that's elsewhere in my notes and I need to find it. Yes. Okay. Uh, he, she, came up behind him as he's kind of in the living room preparing weaponry and he threatened her with a wrench. He like lifted it up like he was going to hit her in the head with it. So there's already, it's there's clearly something going awry here already, especially if he's threatening his mother, who is like the only friend he has. So she goes out to see a friend, Probably it, it sounds callous to say, oh, she went off to go, you know, like chat with a friend over tea. She probably was going to be like, I'm really, really worried about Howard. You know, <laughs> like, I think something bad's going to happen. That's my guess. Yeah, like I actually I have a source that said when when he raised the wrench over her, she's like, what do you want to do that for, Howard? And had to repeat it over and over again, but said that he was like in a trance. So she actually ran to her neighbor's house because she was afraid of him is what I had oh, okay. in my notes. 
Yeah, that, that and that sounds right, really. I mean, who who wouldn't be when he, he's he's acting so strangely? Ironically, the neighbor's house that she ran to, the Pinner residence, they're the ones that helped her put the gate in the day before. He's such a scary fucker. Yeah, and, like I'm sorry if like I turned the corner and he was standing there. Even if he was the nicest guy in the world, hi there, little friend. Would you like some of my post toasties, whatever they are? <laughs> I would be like. Jesus fucking Christ. That would be my first thing. And then I'd try to give him the benefit of the doubt. This dude's got a wrench above his head and he's going to swing it at me. I'd go, hey, buddy, stop. Stop. Please stop. You know, yeah, that's extra fucking scary. Yeah, absolutely. So and then it gets even scarier because he heads out of the house. This would later be called the walk of death. It's around 920, 930. He's got his luger uh it has two clips with eight rounds each although uh a clip will hold nine if you put an extra one in the clip and one in the chamber as he told the police later so each of his clips ends up having total a total of nine rounds see now six this i found interesting he has a luger that is not an american issue weapon lugers were german he bought it damn it i had this in my notes i swear um he actually had bought it the year before like i i kept on seeing the he got it at a sporting goods store in philadelphia for 37 dollars and 50 cents let let me let me uh let me just kind of get to the point of what i'm thinking here right so he buys a luger he was in world war ii he buys a luger a german-made weapon to kill some jewish people yeah, I can see where you're going with that. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. Because I didn't want to have to say it out loud, but I'm going to. <laughs> I think he started to regret, you know, uh, well, maybe the Nazis had the right idea. Well, I mean, it's not just the Coens. He, he's got issues with everybody in his neighborhood. And the neighborhood seems as far as, you know, like immigrants are concerned. We have Italian names. We have names that are kind of, uh, I think, well, kind of polish sounding Pilarchik we get later we have hoover you know like i I, it really i I, you know if if that was a part of it i think it was only a small part okay um but yeah it's it's not gonna go well one one way or the other he also has 16 more loose bullets because he would actually make bullets himself as well as a tear gas pen with six shells and a six-inch knife. And then his Captain Midnight decoder ring. What the fuck? A tear <laughs> gas pen? I know, right? I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't even deal with that. I kind of want one. No, they're pretty easy to make. Okay. I'll Don't help, tell her I'll that. Help you with we'll that. talk later. Absolutely. <laughs> so. Marcus's insurance is going to be paid way up. <laughs> So Frida is over at her friend's house. She's just leaving when the first few shots ring out. And she she knows, you know, she's she runs back into the house of her friend and she says, oh, Howard, oh, Howard, they're to blame for this. And then she faints, which I don't like those words. I don't like those words either. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's not good. That's not good at all. Yeah. So. Unru goes uh, 
he basically is is going shop by shop on his block and his first stop is a shoe repair shop run by 27-year-old John Pilarchik. Unru shoots him in the stomach. There's a little boy in the store. He runs and hides behind the counter. I don't know if this is the same boy, if there were multiple boys in the store. In, in, sorry, in the store. But uh, 60 years later, Ron Dale, who was eight years old at the time, said that he'd been in the cobbler store because the cobbler had some comic books and Ron Dale was waiting for his haircut. And later he would say, I heard this bam. He turned around and looked at me. He left and went to the barbers. And Dale may have been the, the little boy in the store who ran and hid behind the counter. So then Unru went to the tailor shop. Uh, the tailor had actually stepped out. His wife was still there, Helga Zagrino. She was 28. And she screamed when Uru walked in. He shot her and walked out. And if you want your heart to break, the tailor and his wife Helga had only been married for a month. That's that's how long Ariana and I have been married. Doesn't that hit home? That does hit home. That really does hit home. Because, you know, I was yesterday. Yesterday was the first time I've gone down in the basement uh, since my accident. So my, with shoes uh, on, I hope. With shoes on. And 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 Joel, our, our mutual friend Joel, he went down with me. And Joel looked at the floor and he went, My God, this is a lot of blood. I could have tracked you. And he goes oh, and, and like he's he's looking at it and he goes, This is this is like dangerous because this is not a steady trail of blood. If you have a steady trail of blood, that's one thing. He goes, This is blood and spurts, meaning you've hit an artery, and it's like pushing out pushing out pushing out he goes Ugh. yeah and it was kind of it was kind of it was weird because like ariana like sat me back and said you know whenever you heard that did it kind of scare you and i said honestly at first yeah yeah because you know it was a thing where if like i could have i could have lost ariana because i died i could have bled out pretty easily seeing all the blood down there and but at the same time you know, I said, you got, you got to switch it around, you know, for your own sanity's sake. <clears throat> you got to go, you tough son of a bitch. You know, you, this couldn't kill you. Fuck it. You know, what? Br bring on the next, you son of a bitch life. I was actually <laughs> going to ask if what made you kind of scared was that Joel knows that much about blood pattern spillage. We, but we all know Joel knows that I much. know. Yeah. That's why I love Joel. <laughs> yeah, that's why I love Joel, too. I, Ari Hi, Joel. We love you. <laughs> Ariana, Ariana is like talking about Joel, talking about Joel. We were driving home from Walmart and she looks over at me and she goes, I just want you to know I don't have a crush on him. And, and I said, no, I get it. Joel's an interesting character. I said, <coughs> I, excuse me. I said, you know, you're in the process of getting free from, you know, like a rough situation. There was a lot of crime where she was uh, down in the Bahamas. You know, it was a stressful situation living with her parents and I said, you know, you're, you're trying, you know, you're on, you're kind of like, you know, in those infant steps of being your own person. And you're looking at Joel, who is very much his own person. I can, I can see what the fascination would be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how to, how to swing that back to the story. I don't know either. I I'm sorry. I, I was trying to think of a segue. I um, need, I need to see more people. 
I'm the same way. (laughs) All right. So Unruh, he leaves the tailors and he goes to the barber shop. Something to note. If you haven't caught on yet, it's early September. School hasn't quite started yet. So something the all kids would all do before school started was go to get their haircuts. And so in the barber shop was Clark Hoover, the proprietor, and he was cutting the hair of Oris Smith, who is six years old. His mother called him Brooks with an X. Why? Uh, I'm I'm no, we're no, no. No. It's fine. It's fine. She's a in 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 this story, she's about to be very much grief sticking. Live with it, Scott. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> no, like you you call your kids weird things, and I don't know why, but like Carter, I called Booger Face for the longest time, and then I shortened it to Boogie until she was probably twelve and yelled at me to stop. So I mean, sometimes you just come up with nicknames, and then they, I don't know, they just stick. I like my older brother's nickname. You fat piece of shit. Yes. <laughs> It's a great nickname, Scott. It really is. That did so, wonders for my psyche. I'm sure. As as Hoover is cutting Smith's hair, he has Smith... I thought this was pretty ingenious. He had a little hobby horse in the shop in between the regular adult seats. Hobby horse, kind of like a, the, the kind of horse you'd ride on on a merry-go-round. And so six-year-old or Smith is getting his hair cut. And his mother, uh, her name is Catherine Smith. She's 42 years old. She's just kind of watching the proceedings from a near- nearby chair. And this, I, I think it really needs to be emphasized. This is a very small shop. It is only 12 by 12 feet. I mean, this is this is a very small enclosed area. And to have all this happening. This is your barber closet. Yeah, yeah, this is your barber closet. So Unru comes in. He shoots... Oris Smith in the chest and then proceeds to shoot Hoover, the barber, and he leaves Catherine Smith, uh, the mother of the child, unharmed. Unru then leaves the barber shop. Meanwhile, Catherine Smith scoops her child into her arms, stumbles out into the street, screaming, my boy is dead. I know he's dead. Which is just heart-wrenching did you happen to see um the from the camden career post the picture of the barbershop well no they described it uh in the paper and it said people were peering through a big plate glass window looking at a hobby horse in the barbershop that is closed at the base of the standard which held the wooden horse in place was another blotch of blood the blood of another little boy just past six who was having his hair cut in preparation for his first trip to school the next day Oh, if uh, NorthJersey.com actually has a picture of the hobby horse and the blood in the mm. barbershop from from inside the barbershop. Now, see, w- what I think is, is interesting, and this is just how I did my notes, is I actually put in highlight under each victim what our shooter said was the reason he killed them. Okay. All right. All right. Now, well, one thing, did he say anything about why he shot Oris, little Oris? Um, actually the, the barber was trying to protect little Oris and he was trying to shoot the barber, but unfortunately the barber's chest and the boy's head were on the same level. Okay. All right. 
because so Oris Oris was really just collateral damage. In in the interrogation, he just skips right over Oris and a couple of other things too. Um, and, and we'll we'll get to that. But yeah, that's that's uh, it's it's horrifying. It's truly horrifying. So then we have uh, Dominic Latella is a restaurant owner on the block, and he left to his restaurant to see what's going on, what's all the commotion. He sees Catherine Smith, and then he sees Unru uh, looking at a, a nearby tavern that's run by Frank Engel. So Latella runs out, and he sees Mrs. Smith holding her son in her arms. He grabs her son and puts them both in his car and drives them off to the hospital. Of course, it was, was far too late, but he that's still heroic actions in my mind, and especially considering he left his wife and his own six-year-old daughter, same age as the deceased child that he's going to take to the hospital, and he had them like lock themselves up in the restaurant so that they would be safe. Mm. But, you know, as far as he knows, there could be a chance... For Smith, and and so he's just he's doing something very very heroic, I think, in the moment. So Unru heads over to the tavern where the owner Engel was. Uh, he had seen and heard what was going down outside, so he was like, "We're we're locking this shit down. We're locking everything." And then people in the bar they were trying to escape out the back. To which I say, "It's nine thirty in the morning." Yeah. <laughs> Heck, yeah, I've, I have been in a bar that early. Night shift workers is the thing. If there were night shift workers, if there was a factory or something nearby, we don't know specifically uh, if there was. But that, that, yeah, that's certainly entirely possible. Uh, but it's just it, it very much is like, oh, all the people in the bar. And I'm like, how many were there at 930 a.m.? So. You'd be surprised. I used to work with yeah. a guy who'd get, who'd get pre-drunk at work. And then, and then, like right after work, six thirty a.m. Well, no, he got off in an hour before me at first. So, like five thirty a.m., he'd just wander out and go to the nearest bar that was open. Hmm. Like, I can't. Even, I can't even think of a bar that's open at five thirty in the morning. Every every Friday morning when I worked night shift, a bunch of us would get together at seven a.m. and head on over to the bar because that's when it opened. And um, there would be people just filing in. And by 930, that place was hopping. And the bartenders just hanging out, e eating cereal. Like, <laughs> <laughs> my life is shit. Welcome to the bar. <laughs> well, Unru is basically like, no, no, not welcome to the bar. Because he shoots at the door, the, the, the door of the tavern. And meanwhile, Engel, he... It seems like every business, there's an apartment upstairs where the proprietor lives, which is super convenient. He runs upstairs to his apartment because he has a 38 caliber pistol up there. So he goes for his gun. Now hold that thought because we, we're going to keep on following Unru until that becomes Jermaine again. He uh, is shooting, you know, after shooting at the tavern doors, he then sees a apartment window on uh, a second story. And he later would say that he just saw a shadow or someone at the window. So he shot. And who he shot in the head was two-year-old Tommy Hamilton, who had been in his playpen by the window playing with the curtain. Who the fuck? You know, yeah. he, can, he can throw... He can throw all the, all the uh, excuses he wants towards Oris. 
I'm sorry. This guy was just zooming in on movement and pulling the trigger. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what he was doing. Yeah. Um, I I did find where he was talking about Oris in the confession. Um, he he was talking about how the barber had quote dodged around the barber chair, making it difficult for me to get a clear shot. But I finally hit him, walked over, and then shot into his head. So I don't even think he realized really like he didn't I'm sure he saw Oris, but he didn't really see Oris. He was just zoned in. I'm going to kill the barber. Yeah, it seems like zoned in is very uh, apt or zoned out, really, in a way. It, it, was he was he hyper focused or was he just not even there in a way? I, is just wanted to kill. He just <laughs> wanted to fucking kill because here you have a piece of shit that doesn't know how to solve his problems because that's that's what he's been fucking trained. How do you solve any problem? You point a gun at it and your problem goes away. And he carried that he carried that foolish thought into a society and that's what he's doing. He's trying to find a solution to his problem. He's incapable of talking and his diseased fucking brain is going like, "Well, just shoot at everything until the problem's solved." Well, no, he had a list. He had he had a list with a journal with detailed reasons as to why all of his neighbors must die. Because that's that's one of the things with all these businesses and the people that live above them. They're literally his neighbors. He lives there. And did they also are the businesses that he goes to himself? Mm-hmm. Still a piece of shit. Can't convince me otherwise. Well, no, absolutely, <laughs> oh, no. absolutely. Oh, I'm on board. <laughs> he he has a list of of grievances and slights, both real and imagined, and he needs to kill everyone on his list. And everybody else is just you moved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. What have we been up to lately, guys? We've been playing Best Fiends. Damn straight we have, my ninjas. <laughs> Best Fiends is a mobile puzzle game. You go around solving these puzzles and collecting adorable characters. And it's casual, so it doesn't stress you out. It's such a bright, fun, colorful game. And boy, do we love playing it. And with over 100 million global downloads, we're definitely not alone. And they are always coming out with new challenges and events, so it never gets old. All right, guys, it's that time again. Level check. Seven fifty-two. Fourteen fifty-one. Guys, got a little bit of work to catch up to me at good old level twenty-three ninety-five. Whoa! <laughs> Is your husband beating you? I haven't checked in with him on where he is. I think you guys are kind of neck and neck, actually. Okay, but you're just dusting actually, all wait. of us. I'll just get him in here. $16.99. $16.99! Okay, so I've decided I'm never going to catch Christy, <laughs> but I can maybe catch Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> you do it. I bet you can if you really try. <laughs> Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So he heads back to Latella's restaurant, where, remember, Latella's wife and six-year-old daughter were. 
He tries to bust in there by shooting at the door, and he also even breaks a window in the lower part of the door. When that fails, he just moves on down the road. So there are people are screaming, people are running, even there are children who are ran past him and screaming, but he ignored them. So that it may not even be everything that moves. He 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 seems to still have some semblance of a laser focus, even though it seems to get distracted at some point. I once again, once again. I, I can't I can't believe that it's like that it's that I, I don't pretend to understand how people pick and choose their victims there. I, I, I heard a podcast where they were talking to somebody who was part of a mass shooting and it was at an NPR. It was at a national public radio studio. Right. And there people are getting shot. These people run out. They find they they see a cop. And the co- they go to the cop and they go, what do we do? And the cop, he's in full tactical gear. He goes, I don't know. And so mm. they, they run away and they hide. Uh, long story short, the cops finally come in, kill the shooter. The cop that they ran into wasn't the cop. It was the shooter. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. Right. So, I mean, they ran right up to the shooter, said, what do we do? He goes, I don't know. And then they go hide. Why did he let them live? And, uh, you know, it's fucking you're it's it's a fool's task to try to put intelligent logic and some semblance of order into these people's minds. Yeah, you're right. It's 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 the human thing that we want to do. We want to put that order into their minds because we need it to be there in order to understand it. But the problem is we're never going to fully understand it because it's un understandable. Right. What's the, fir- <laughs> what's the first question? What's the first question after a mass shooting happens? Why? Why? Right. You can't have a why because you're trying to, you're trying to assign some sort of human logic to these people and they have let go of their humanity. Absolutely. I mean, Unru, he, he, we, we talk about a list and everything, but, and, 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 you know, maybe a, a, a six-year-old child, a, a two-year-old child, they were collateral damage or whatever. But next thing is just a guy driving down the street. Alvin Day is just driving down the street and Unru just shoots him as he drives past and kills him right there. Like that's, that's just a random passerby now where it's not even collateral damage. It's just there, there's a person I'll shoot them. You know, even though, and, 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 and again, it's also random. There's children running past him. He doesn't shoot, but he's already killed a kid or two, you mm-hmm. know? So now remember Engel, our, our tavern owner, he is in his apartment on the second floor. And so now he takes a shot at Unru, but he, and he does, he, he makes the shot. Unru is hit, but he doesn't even flinch. And that's the only shot Engel takes later says that he wished it, he wished he'd taken more and actually killed Unru because he, he said, he said, I don't even know why. I don't know why I didn't take more shots. I don't know why I didn't do it. And I honestly wonder if there wasn't some part of him that was like, well, damn, I shot him. And he's not even slowing down. What the hell? <laughs> you know, gotta like that, be fucking terrifying. Yeah. yeah but yeah. you know what? Like, I, I feel like I would feel the same way if I shot somebody and they didn't flinch and kept walking. I'd be like, not human. This is the Terminator shit. Uh-uh. Like, <laughs> As someone who's I need, like an exorcist or something. <laughs> as someone who has recently had a pretty bad injury, didn't feel it. <clears throat> didn't yeah. feel it for and, four and, or five hours. And that that injury, uh, it's it's not going to come up again for a while. But keep in mind, he is he is injured. Uh, was was shot in the leg. So, 
now Unru is heading to the pharmacy to that is run by Maurice Cohen. Maurice Cohen had heard all the commotion. He came running out, but then he sees Unru and he sees the gun and he runs right back into the drugstore and then goes up to his apartment above the store where his mother, wife, and youngest son were. And he's telling everybody to hide. All these motherfuckers but, live at work. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So do so we a, right now. That's true. <laughs> You're not wrong. So there is a customer in the drugstore, James Hutton. He was an insurance agent. Not just an insurance agent. He was Unru's insurance agent. In his, in his confession, he literally says, my insurance agent. He works for Prudential. And so Hutton is 45 and he steps outside the drugstore, whether he's just leaving or after buying something or he's just checking out what's going on is unclear. He runs right into Unru. Unru says, excuse me, sir. But uh, Hutton does not move fast enough for him, as he later says. So he shoots him twice, once in the body and once in the head. Hutton goes down and is dead. So, moving back to the Cohen apartment, Maurice Cohen has just run up there and said, everybody hide. So, Rose Cohen gets her son, Charles, into a closet. She goes to hide in another, and it's then that Unru actually, he had gone into the pharmacy, and he had gone up into the apartment when he saw there was nobody in the pharmacy. He sees her going into the closet. He shoots three shots into the door, and then he hears her yelling, screaming, crying, whatever. So he opens the door, shoots her some more in the face and the head, and Rose Cohen is dead. Uh, now, Maurice Cohen must have been either, there, there weren't enough other places to hide, or he was in, in serious flight mode because he was jumping out a window and onto the roof of, of a porch. And Unru goes to the window, shoots him right in the back. Cohen is running across the roof at that point and had just reached the very end of it. Cohen is shot. He falls off the roof down to the street where he is dead. Face plants right on the pavement. Mm. One one kind of hopes he's dead before he hits because I've hit my face on the pavement. That is that's no fun. Yeah, that doesn't sound uh, pleasant at all. So so yeah, having killed Rose Cohen and Maurice Cohen, he then moves on to, he sees Minnie Cohen is going to the bedroom to call the police. So he shoots, now remember that was Cohen's mother. He shoots her uh, in the head and the body, killing her. And then he leaves the apartment and goes back down to the street. Meanwhile, Charles is unharmed in the closet. So a survivor who... Came pretty close, you know? This so, is this is what I found fascinating about Charles. Wait, save it for the end. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, save it for the end. I'll, I think that's a good ending. Okay. You, you, can, you can go ahead and be the one to, to deliver that bit. Oh, no, but. no, 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 no. You go right <laughs> ahead. You go right ahead. But yes, I do find that insanely fascinating. But I, I'll keep my mouth shut for now. Yeah, that was one of those things that I had to spoil Jackson for because I was like, listen to this shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, holy shit. Motherfucker. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, back down on the street, Unru sees uh, a car at a red light. It has three occupants, Helen Wilson, who's 43, 
her mother, Emma Matlack, who is 66, and also Helen Wilson's son, John, who is 12. He shoots through the... Unru shoots through the windshield. Uh, he kills Helen Wilson and Emma Matlack. John Wilson is shot in the neck for the moment he survives, but he would later die in the hospital. Uh, his next attempt is to get into the corner grocery store, but people were running in there saying there's a crazy man killing people. So that had gotten locked up. So he finds that, you know, he can't get in. So he shoots at the door, but no one is injured or, or killed there. And then a few local boys had been driving past, including Charlie Peterson, 18. They saw Hutton, the insurance agent. They saw his body and they got out to check out what was going on. And so Unru sees them. He shoots at them. Charlie Peterson gets shot in the legs and his friends flee. Peterson did survive. So we had mentioned earlier, this is interesting because I, I couldn't, I didn't make the connection until I, I read his confessions. The, the gate in the fence that had just been built, that had not been built in the fence between the Unru property and the Cohen property. That had been built in the fence between the Unru property and the Harry property. Uh, so he was supposed to be using that. And then that's, it was. That's what I call my junk, out. the Harry property. <laughs> oh god <laughs> so he goes to the the harry house where you have uh madeline harry and she is in her late 30s she has two sons armand and leroy no sorry three sons armand leroy and wilson they are respectively 16 15 and 14 the two eldest are in the house and wilson was actually he was at the grocery store when everything went chaotic and was was locked up there so he was safe but then unru was in his house with his brothers and his mother so unru shoots madeline harry he seems to be wavering at first his, his sharpshooter instincts seem to be pretty every single thing i can think of is a pun i've got multiples <laughs> dead on on target for god's sakes can my brain not be puns no, no. See, accurate. There we go. Just a regular word, accurate. It seems to be pretty accurate, but at this point, it seems like he's flagging a little bit. Um, he only gets Madeline Harry in the arm on his third shot, and then he uh, is actually attacked by Armand, who, a very brave young boy, tries to take Unru down, uh, Unru then gets him, you know, clocks him with the butt of his gun and shoots Armand twice in the gun, 16-year-old. And meanwhile, Leroy, the, the third son, middle one, he is upstairs hiding under the bed. Armand and Madeline would both survive. The Fi police... Finally. Go finally yeah, right? news. The police have been starting to arrive. They've got shotguns, machine guns, tear gas... And when Sergeant Earl Wright first pulls up, his attention is immediately drawn to the Cohen apartment because Charlie is leaning out the window and yelling, he's going to kill me. He's killing everybody. And meanwhile, his father is laying dead on the pavement underneath him, which is horrifying. 
Really, about this time, Unruh ran out of ammunition. He had shot about 30 times. So around 10 a.m. or so, he goes back to his own house. He'd kind of done like a little circuit of the businesses and then kind of swung back around to his neighbors. And then he's back at his house. So the police set up outside. They are aiming at his bedroom window. They're ready to shoot. And then this happens. This this reporter, this this assistant city editor of the Camden Evening Courier, Philip Buxton, uh, who wants to do a, a reading with me? Do you guys have this? I do. The conversation? Yes, I, I do as well. All right. So uh, why don't you two do it? Uh, Scott, you are uh, Buxton, and Amber, you are Unru. Oh, uh, is this Howard? Yes. What's the last name of the party you want? Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this. Un, 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 unraw. Scott, Scott, just do it. Unraw. <laughs> just read the line. <laughs> What's the last name of the party you want? Unraw. Because Christy's sucking all the fun out of my life. <laughs> What's the last name of the party you want? Unruh. I'm a friend and I want to know what they're doing to you. They're not doing a damn thing to me, but I'm doing plenty to them. And then I have in quotations, in a soothing, reassuring voice. Um, how many have you killed? I don't know yet because I haven't counted them. But it looks like a pretty good score. Why are you killing people? I don't know. I can't answer that yet. I'm too busy. At that point, Buxton heard Unruh move away from the phone as gunfire was heard in the background. See, I saw two different other possibilities of how that conversation ended. It was completely I'm not different. done! <laughs> Bang! <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll, yeah, either... I'll have to talk to you later. A couple of friends are coming to get me. Yeah, that's the other one, or he just hung up is the other, is the, is the third possibility. It's It's so weird, there's like three possible endings and you would think it being a reporter an editor we would have a straight story here no like that was my ending i'll have to talk to you later a couple of friends are coming to get me scott was just reading the at that point buxton heard on remove away from the phone as gunfire was heard and that's then, the other ending that's and, the third ending well no <laughs> there's like it doesn't end there it ends with i'll have to talk to you later that's what i'm saying <laughs> That's, we don't actually know because in one version I read, it was the last thing that that Buxton heard was uh, Unruh saying, you know, I'm too busy now and hanging up. And another version, the last <laughs> thing he heard from Unruh was, I'll have to talk to you later. A couple of friends are coming to get me. And then Scott read the version where there was like gunfire in the background. So like, which one is it? <laughs> I, I think it's honestly, it's all of them. Because probably the, the one that Scott and I have has all of it with with the uh, I can't answer yet. I'm too busy. And then the gunfire. And then he comes back and says, I'll have to talk to you later. A couple of friends are coming to get me. And then that's where it ends. God damn. I would have written this so much differently. I'd be like, so how many people have you killed? Eleven. Twelve. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, Scott. <laughs> So there is there is a lot of the, the chaos. The cops are shooting into his window, and they're also shooting tear gas up there. So Unru goes to the window and says, "Okay, I give up. I'm coming down." He's he's overcome. Yeah. Oh yeah. But- I I saw this on one source, so I was I was going to actually question it for you guys. So I actually saw that they shot tear gas 
from the roof that the Cohen's had, well, that Mr. Cohen had been shot off of. Oh, I didn't know that. That would make sense. You have a much better uh, possibility of actually getting the target you're aiming at if from like directly across than from down and shooting upwards. I like to think that Unruh went to the window and used his tear gas pen and tried to shoot back. <laughs> <laughs> Your head cannon is always better than reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. But he didn't hit them. He was just, it, 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 if it's better than reality, he, he can't actually harm any more people. That's That's got to be the, the way it is. So. Yeah, in my little head cannon, anytime somebody... Anytime somebody goes on a mass shooting spree, I have them turn their gun on themselves first. Yeah. So they he comes out. He's all overcome by the tear gas. They cuff him. Sergeant Wright asks him, what's the matter with you? You a psycho? And Unruh says, I'm no psycho. I have a good mind. Is exactly no, what don't. a psycho would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So he had killed 13 people and wounded three and all the neighborhood now that he's cuffed is coming over. They're, they're flooding into the streets. They're yelling, they're cursing. There's even, you know, t the word lynching is brought up a couple of times, but the cops managed to manage to stuff him in the back of their car and get him back to the station where he is interrogated. Now, he has lots of details, and just because I, I love our listeners so much, I read the whole 66-page PDF of his confession, which actually wasn't long because it was, you know, like, typeset. So it was you know, courier font and then, you know, every other line, and some of the lines are, like, three words long. So it wasn't that much of a sacrifice, but I did it, even though I had copious amounts of information. So, um, Unru told police that Cohen had insulted him by telling a customer that Unruh was, quote, allowing his mother to support him. He said the shopkeepers said that they would gang up on him and have him arrested, possibly because he had stolen some of their spare lumber uh, because his basement where he had his target range was being flooded. And so he was trying to keep the flooding out of the basement. And he told the police I'm glad I'd done it the neighbors had been picking on me for months and when I came home last night and found my gate had been taken I decided to shoot all of them so that I would get the right one I wonder if so the gate was ever recovered no actually I know this it was not recovered because somebody back just in recent years went back to do like a, a piece on the house it was like on one of the anniversaries of this and uh, they actually ended their article with, and note, the gate is still missing. Hmm. I so like we still to, don't know who took the gate. I like to think it was some eight-year-old kid. And just, because I did shit that I never, uh, I never fessed up to whenever I was a kid. Would you ever tell anybody if you had done that as a child and mm. led to the demise of 13 people? Never. 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 <laughs> never. Yeah, he was basically just going around town shooting everybody, and that was his plan so that he would make sure that he shot the one person who took his gate, which he didn't know who. But he actually, he had ulterior motives for each and every kill. So, um, even, even the grocery store. So, the grocery store, he said that the manager of American Store Grocery was always nice to me until a clerk that he hired had difficulty one time with me over some change, and since that time forward, the manager was never nice. 
um, the barber had excavated for a cellar and put dirt all over the vacant lot to the rear, which um, prevented the free drainage of heavy rainfall, which actually led to his cellar flooding. So he, he blamed the barber for that. Um, let me see. The shoemaker he thought was burying trash in his backyard and throwing trash into the yard on many occasions. Um, and then actually Mrs. Cohen said, hey, you, can you be quieter with that gate? And it was the hey, you that really pissed him off because he thought that having served for the, the country and like fought the war, he should have a lot more respect than hey, you. Sounds like somebody who's worried a lot about what people think about him and not willing to not willing to think that problems just happen, that it's always got to be somebody else's fault. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Nothing is, is his fault in any way, even though he was annoying the neighbors by leaving the gate open. He was playing his music louder you know, than, than maybe was warranted. And but he, he has all these petty, petty grievances, but then he doesn't actually ever do anything about them. He said at one point he's like, well, Cohen shortchanged me five times over at the, the pharmacy and the police are like, well, did you say anything about it? He's like, no. Like <laughs> the answer to this, if you actually are being shortchanged, is to either go to another pharmacy if one is at least convenient, talk to the pharmacist about it and say, "Hey, look, is this happening? What's what's going on?" Something, anything other than shoot everyone. If, there's so many answers before you get to shoot everyone that shoot everyone shouldn't even be an answer. God damn it! There's so many other things that you could do. You never want to be shortchanged at the pharmacy again. Well, then you got to take a little bit of time and pay in pennies. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? You want to be a dick? I've got no problem with people being a dick. Be petty. Just don't shoot people. Like, the pharmacy's, pharmacy's being a dick to you. Be a dick back to them. Pay for everything in pennies. Yeah, I think his, his, his brain was just sick. And the thing is, is that we in no way want to make any excuses but the thing is, is that he had been in war and PTSD was a thing that was not at all addressed. Psych psychiatric and psychological help were not things that were all available. And that was even if they weren't incredibly stigmatized. This was a pot that was boiling and was going to overflow. And it, it, there, were, there was no mechanism to turn the fucking stove off is the problem. It, uh, among other things, among the, the fact that he apparently was raised to blame everyone else for his problems but himself and or just life in general being a little shitty sometimes and having such an, an oversized reaction to such tiny little grievances. In addition to all that, there's nothing. There's nobody to, to sit him down who he will listen to to say, hey, move on. It's, you know, do something else, but you don't need to resort to violence or, you know, even addressing the obvious mental health issues that are going on here. I know you I know you served the country. Suck it up, Buttercup. Basically, yeah. So in his interrogation, he's he's basically talking calmly and forthrightly. He he says, I'll tell you everything, uh, absolutely, about the sequence of events, but and he has to be asked twice before he's like, Oh yeah, I did shoot the boy in the barbershop. I did shoot Oris. 
And he also forgets shooting into the restaurant door. He forgets about the apartment where he killed the young two-year-old until he's prompted. And then, like I said, he just says, oh, well, I just saw someone in the window and I shot them. It just, it, that doesn't make any sense. A two-year-old is never going to be more than like, unless those windows are for some reason floor to ceiling in a New Jersey apartment on the second story <laughs> in right. a regular residential and business neighborhood. There's no way that you're going to see more than just like the head, maybe. A two-year-old, you're going to have to, like, okay, you're, you come into a place with a gun. Nobody shoots from the hip. I'm sorry. Nobody shoots from the hip. To get an accurate shot, and this guy was an accurate marksman, to get an accurate shot, the gun has to be in front of your face. you got to line up the sights. A man like Unra comes in, there's no way he's going to be able to shoot a two-year-old kid if the gun's like, it's probably going to be like four, four and a half feet off the ground if he's shooting horizontal. No, that fucker had to aim down to the two-foot mark for, for yeah, a something, kid. Something's definitely not not right there. And then... Even he he didn't even realize that he had shot Mr. Cohen. He's like, oh no, Mr. Cohen was just running off across the roof, and then then he jumped off. And they were like, um, the bullet hole in him uh, kind of speaks to some other conditions happening. And he's like, oh okay. And the first time they asked about the tailor's wife Helga, he he said he just went into the tailor's building, the tailor's shop. There was nobody there, and he walked out again. Just completely blanked on shooting a woman, and that wasn't that was like his like what like third or something. It wasn't even you know like way down the line when they all I guess blend together, which is horrifying. That was one of the early ones. So like the fact that he was just he just glosses all over this. He he completely doesn't remember or speak of shooting Armand in the arm. All this is just completely not in his head at all. Um, I actually, also mind. I, I was going to say, I don't know if this is accurate because they, I don't know if you noticed this, but they kept changing the order of events in different articles, um, as to who got oh, shot yeah. first. I had Helga near the bottom. She was the 10th I have. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I have her. And the thing is, is that reading the confession, you don't really, I guess, I guess, you know, like in his mind when he stepped into the tailor shop, but that is incredibly unreliable as a narrator, as a self narrator, because he leaves so much out, even when asked then, and you know, the asked open up ended questions like what happened next? What did you do next? It seems like it's all just a blur in his mind. And it all happened. The thing that, that I, I think people should realize it all happened. It's so fast. Now, some sources say 12 minutes, some sources say 20, but we have it somewhere in that range. It all happened so fast that it's not like they could, you know, ascribe time of death, in order to get some sort of accurate idea of the order of things, people are going to have different timelines of events because everything's happening so fast. And eyewitness testimony, it, it can be fallible to begin with. So yeah, like we have no way of knowing in what order. And, you know, I guess, I guess it doesn't really matter. The people are still dead. Yeah. Well, some you of know? them live though. Cause like, I didn't, I didn't hear the uh, bread delivery man, but, um, but that was one of the first people he tried to shoot at was a bread delivery guy. The guy says he missed me by inches. I was seated in my bread truck going over my records and he walked up and shoved a pistol through the door at me. I thought, I, I thought it was a holdup. I tumbled into the back of my truck among the bread boxes. He fired one shot and thank God he missed me. See, I didn't even have the bread delivery guy. 
Well, and then the Brett guy was actually a hero because he then saw a couple kids on the road. So he grabbed them and hid them in the bread truck and then tried to drive down the road to warn other people. But he was too late. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. So it's it's really it's all a blur, apparently, for Unruh. It's all a blur for the police investigating, the people who survived, the people who witnessed. And therefore, it's all kind of a blur for us. So all we can do is try to kind of just, you know, sew these pieces together in some sort of raggedy form. But even when you're present for a, a, an event, you don't know the full story. You know, you only see what you see and hear what you hear. And can remember differently than reality. So who the hell knows? So uh, he had been, Unruh had been shot himself. Uh, remember, Angle uh, shot him from the second story above the tavern and he didn't even say anything. It was only after the interrogation of, of like a couple of hours that they saw the blood on the seat and they were like, oh shit, <laughs> should probably take this dude to the hospital. But uh Let's take some back streets and go slow. <laughs> so that's what I would do. Um, and the thing is that uh, makes you mad. Meanwhile, while he's being at the hospital, being taken care of and patched up, John Wilson, who was in the car with his mother and grandmother and was shot in the neck, he's you know 12 year old is dying in that same hospital. Mm. And he told police like, if, if he'd had more ammo, he would have just kept on going. He would have killed as many people as he possibly could. And I mean, I don't doubt it. He he was just he was he had become he had be it's like you know, Scott said he no more humanity here. He was a machine. He was a killing machine. Now, in his home, they found quite a lot of materials and 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 objects. So his bedroom was decorated with uh, bayonets, pistols, and trench art. And there was also a machete there that he told police he had purchased for the specific purpose of decapitating the Cohens. Whenever I hear trench art, the first thing I think of is like some sort of store that he would have opened. Grinning Howie's Nazi child skulls. <laughs> it's on the very, very dark version of Etsy. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a dark Etsy? Because I want there to be. I kind of want there to be, but without any like Nazi stuff. <laughs> so I made I made this necklace out of earrings myself. <laughs> yeah, like that would be cool. Yeah. So yeah, so they found that. They found many more knives, guns, other weapons, and seven hundred rounds, as well as equipment to make bullets like he had. They found the hit list that Amber mentioned, and they found uh, some sex hygiene books. So that's interesting. I, I had questions about that. I mean, I can say when I was growing up in my family, we didn't get the talk. We got the book and the book was from like 20 years prior. It had been published. The uh, doctors who had written it, uh, husband and wife, were on the back cover in their bell bottoms. <laughs> and I'm just saying, science moves forward, mom. So, sex they, hygiene was uh, just written by some Swedish doctor. Then you're dirty. It's not good. Yeah. <laughs> 
So yeah, like it's entirely possible that maybe, especially this being a religious household, that his mother had chosen that route to educate him when he was younger. And instead of actually sitting down and having the talk and those books just ended up being on his shelf with other books. So it, it may, it may or may not be something we can read a lot into it, or maybe he's like not to kink shame, but no, I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll kink shame this specific murderer. If you also have this kink, that's fine. But in his specific case, I will kink shame. Maybe they turned him on. No, you know what? I think I, I think I know why. I think I know why now. It's going to be really hard to buy gay porn. No. Well, no, so I think it was because he had an STD, because he had gonorrhea. Did he have it? Do you know that? Yeah, he admitted to having it. I don't know, how, do, how do you find this shit and yeah. I don't? Shit, <laughs> I didn't find that. <laughs> I have 18 sources. <laughs> how did you pick the ones that held all the information and I didn't? <laughs> I don't know, because my brain automatically goes to that. I'll, I'll find it for you, but I, I know I read that he had gonorrhea. I mean, I don't doubt you at all. I just like doubt my own research skills now. <laughs> right. I just I just went over all my sources, typed in the word, typed in G O N N, realized, oh hey, because uh, the people listening to this are going to hear not found. I went through every last source I have here, typed in G O N A, nothing was found after I hit Control F. Realized, oh wait, gonorrhea may, may have two ends. Went back and tried to look for it again. Not a damn thing. You think that would be kind of important. Why'd you blow those people away? Burns whenever I pee. I understand now. <laughs> I'll find it, but I know I have somewhere in my notes that he had gonorrhea. Um, so I, I will yeah. find it, get back to you. Absolutely. Meanwhile, let's move on to the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> burning piss to burning bush. Because <laughs> women get gonorrhea, too. So the Bible was opened to Matthew chapter 24. And I took a look at some of what is in Matthew 24. Again, may or may not have influenced him, but we know that he did like his prophecies. And Matthew 24 is where Jesus tells his fo followers about the little apocalypse, which is what it's called in, you know, scholarly stuff and how how they'll know it's happening and i want you to know that i am going to give you some choice lines that i cherry picked the fuck out of <laughs> i skipped over the stuff that did not make any sort of case for me and i just brought in the stuff that did so <laughs> just so you know i'm being completely honest so several quotes here i have four total one truly i tell you not one stone here will be left on another Everyone will be thrown down. Two. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Three. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go to down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to their to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Just thinking of the mothers who lost their babies. I'm also thinking, um, let no one come down from the housetop. I can think of one person that definitely came down from the housetop. Yep, yep. And then four... 
Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him to steal your gate. I added that last part. <laughs> Fuck. Okay, so I found it. Okay. Um, so this was actually from an interview that Unruh himself did with the psychiatrist uh, after the massacre. And he was explaining that he was, in fact, gay. He, he said that from 1944 to 1946, he had a girlfriend, but he broke it off after telling her that he was schizo and would never marry her. He told the psychiatrist that she meant nothing to him and they never had sex. Following their breakup, he'd been with a lot of men and said he'd once contracted gonorrhea. After dropping out of Temple in 1948, he did keep his room in Philadelphia for nearly a year because that's where he would go to have sex. Uh-huh. All right. And, and. Then, and then to Scott's point, who said that this might be like a, a racial or religious kind of motive, um, the maid for the lodging house that he had a room in was African-American. And she told detectives that he would write derogatory slurs in the dust on the writing desk. Oh, well, directed at her. Yeah, it, they're, they're definitely could. Okay. All right. I, I will uh, toss that point over into to Scott's corner that there may have been more uh, of, of a racial component to this than, than I had realized. I am also going to take, uh, take, <clears throat> what's the word I'm looking for here? Umbridge. I'm going to take umbrage with the word apocalypse. Because okay, all right, sure. It, it is used in the modern sense, it is used completely wrong from what it was intended to. So, apocalypse now, whenever we think of like Christ's apocalypse, we think the end of the world. No, 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 no. Apocalypse comes from two Greek words, apo, which is the prefix meaning to un. It's un, like unable, uh, unwilling. That's what apo means. And kaleptine, meaning to cover. Apocalyptine means to uncover or reveal a truth. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, bring it in. Explain to me where, where that... Um hits the Unruh case. Well, well, they were talking about it being open to Christ talking about his apocalypse and Matthew. And somebody in the 40s to today, somebody, quite honestly, all the way up from like 1850 on, is going to look at apocalypse and go, end of the world, bright blood. Bright. No, it just fucking means to uncover a truth. Okay, all right. All right. So... Unruh was charged with 13 counts of willful and malicious slayings with malice aforethought and three charges of atrocious assault and battery. Because remember, he had killed 13 uh, and injured three. They do bring in psychologists and psychiatrists to check him out. As Amber said, he's diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Which is bullshit. Yeah, that really uh, is. Yeah, I'm with you guys on that one. I don't. I mean, again, none of us are psychologists, psych, psych, psychiatrists. Some of us can't say the words. Um, so there are a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists since then that believe that his diagnosis was incorrect. That it was just a catch-all when they didn't know what else to call it back then. 
Yeah, I'm with them. This doesn't really seem to it, fit the bill at it's, all. It's the flu-like symptoms of the mind. Because everything, mm-hmm. every, every medicine you have, every disease you can get is accompanied with flu-like symptoms. So it was just, they threw something on him just to label him. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that ended up being the reason that there wasn't a trial. He was found not competent to stand trial. And thus he was committed to a psychiatric hospital in a ward for the criminally insane. He would for years fight to be paroled or barring that to get a transfer to somewhere a little cushier, but Every single time he tried to stand up and fight, the victims' families were there to push him back down because they were absolutely certain that after everything he had done to them, he was not going to get a cushier life or get out on the streets where he could do this again. And eventually, it takes years and years But the hearings and proceedings all stop. And just every year, instead of having the whole thing happen again and having the families having to all relive this horror again is just a judge signs an order every year and that order keeps him locked up weirdly in 1980 you had the charges against him dismissed and a superior court judge ruled that unru had been denied a speedy trial but nothing really happened as far as that was concerned he did stay uh locked up in the uh ward now one of my sources here uh, was in the new york times it was meyer Berger. he was uh at the new york times and he got tossed this the story got tossed his way around 11 a.m the day of the shootings so he hopped a train to camden Spent the whole day working on the story. It was 4,000 words when he finished, and he managed to get that back to the office one hour before the first edition closed. And in 1950, he received the Pulitzer Prize for local reporting. I think that's pretty amazing. I... <laughs> had some days. I had some time in the newsroom at a small local uh, daily paper, and yeah, it was sure stressful that time that I was at a uh, township meeting and they were talking about a contentious issue, and I still had a forty-five minute drive back to the office before I could file my paltry story that would be on page two that nobody really cared about, uh, and I had to be like, "Can y'all just like?" Shoot me an email with the the gist of whatever happens with this zoning thing that nobody else cares about. Like, just that would be helpful because I need to get this back by 11 p.m. You know, like we need to put the paper to bed. So, yeah, uh, having that's a whole different story than having to go and cover this incredibly complex, complicated shooting that was really the first big mass shooting in America. I mean, to cover that story and be able to do it in a day and not just, I would just stand there being like, if, if this had never happened before, I would just be like, what the hell's going, what's going on? What happened? I don't understand. And instead, Berger just got right to work and did the job. And I got to give him many props for that. Um, he got a cool surprise. I think he's cool. Yeah. 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 I think he's, he probably doesn't need my props. <laughs> my props mean nothing to him. <laughs> So uh, Leonard Cohen went on to become a social services worker. 
He got married. He had a daughter and four grandchildren and a bunch of great-grandchildren. In retirement, he moved down to Florida where he volunteered for a Jewish center and a VA health center. He died in 2007 at the age of 75. Charlie Charles Cohen, uh, 60 years after the shooting, he was interviewed and he said, quote, you get through it, but you never get over it. I think about my parents every day. He had mm. been married for 52 years. He had three daughters and seven grandchildren. In 2009, September, he died at the age of 72, just two days before the 60th anniversary of the shootings. And then he was buried on the 60th anniversary of the shootings. He was still, when he passed, waiting for the call to tell him that Unruh had died. That wouldn't happen until one month after Charles Cohen passed, when Unruh died at age 78, which is the oldest that anyone in the story got to be. And his last words publicly that were relayed to the public. They were told by a psychologist who interviewed him. I'd have killed a thousand if I had enough bullets. God fucking damn it. And he, okay. he grew so, up to be a fucking Harry Carey lookalike. All right. But I have to say, Christy, I had a very different quote from Charles Cohen. Yeah. Okay. So, so the quote that I had is what he told the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, he, he talked about how he was still haunted by that morning. And he said um, he was he was talking about how he was waiting for the call that Honoro had died. And he said, I'll make my final statement, spit on his grave and go on with my life. Yeah, I missed that one. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. I was like, ooh, I like him. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I feel bad that he didn't get the call and and wasn't able to do that. Um, Scott, do you want to take it away? Ooh, yeah, sure. This this is like one of those weird things where it's like, dang, you know, quinky dink. It is it is quite the quinky dink to to the point where it's like you almost feel like some families are are cursed, right? Um. So, Maurice and Rose Cohen's son, Charles, he was 12 years old. He's the only Cohen to survive the attack. How did he survive? Go ahead. Well, Leonard, his brother, his brother Leonard was still alive, too, but oh, he, okay. he wasn't actually in the house right. of the attack. Bro. Right. Just right. pointing that out. <laughs> so, how does he survive? Charlie hides in a closet. Now, he is the grandfather of Carly Novell who had survived the February 14th, 2018 shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. How did she survive this mass shooting? Hiding in the closet, just like Granddad. And that was 17 killed and 17 wounded. Yeah. And you have you just have to wonder, it like, is it... Is it what Scott, Scott said that some families are cursed or is it to the point where 
mass shootings are just so entrenched in our culture that, yeah, you're going to have a couple of families where it's happened a couple of times to a couple of people. I don't know which one is worse, honestly. Can't tell you. Oh, way to be a downer, Christy. <laughs> well, geez, I was going to I was going to have life, a nice little movie night date. Yeah, I have R. <coughs> R. Kelly stuck in my head with all this talk about <coughs> go, what go I, ahead and say that again, Amber. I'm sorry. I said, I have R. Kelly stuck in my head with all this trapped in the closet talk. Ooh. <laughs> what, what I do like to think, maybe, I don't know the truth of it, and I may just be mythologizing somebody else's life, but what I do like to think is that maybe Carly Novell had heard the story uh, of her grandfather, maybe from him, maybe from her own parents, family, whatever, and knowing his experience, that was the first thing she she her brain jumped to was granddad hid in the closet. He was spared. Maybe the same will be, happen, you know, will happen for me. And so, you know, she, she took her granddad's experience and managed to use it to survive as well. Yeah, so. Great grandma hid in the closet. Maybe it only works for boys. <laughs> no, well, great grandma was the one who told Charlie to go in the closet before she went to go and hide in the closet herself. So mm. great grandma by seeing to her child first, Rose Cohen, by seeing to her child first, she ended up sacrificing her life because he, when, when Unru came up the stairs, he saw her getting into the closet. So I, I don't, I, I, honestly, I think it's a case of sacrificed her life to, to save her child. Didn't necessarily know for sure, but knew it was a possibility. She, you know, attended to her child before she tried to save her own life. And, Yes, that's what ended up killing her, but I think she would have been um, satisfied to know that her sacrifice saved her son, at least. Meanwhile, oh, no, dad's running scared across the roof. I, I don't think there were enough closets. It was probably a small apartment. Where's he in the high? If there's no under the bed or whatever, your your, your options are limited. Don't don't have a nice long tablecloth, you know? You're, then you're, you're screwed. You're killing me, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to disrespect the victims, many of whom still have living relatives today. So. That might be listening <laughs> to the show. Yes, exactly. That would be my point. Send all so. hate mail to scott.mort27 at gmail.com. That's, yes, please do. That's not my email address, by the way. But no, it's not. Some some other Scott Mort's going to get it, and it'll be his problem and not mine. <laughs> All right. So I think that's everything we have on Howard Unruh and the Walk of Death. Yeah. Not unless, like, it turns out. Oh, it it like Amber digs up something. Oh, here it says he had demons in his hair. Like, <laughs> actually, you know what? I do actually have something kind of. God like that. fucking damn it. <laughs> I concur. Um, no, like I, I have. Okay, I have. I have to go back because this was my page one. Y'all do things differently than me. Um, I'm a chronological motherfucker, is what I am. Well, no, because I, I have a bunch of stuff about how he had um, difficulty learning how to use a toilet. He didn't walk until he was after 16 months. But did anybody have the stuff on the Oedipus complex and his his uh, interviews with that? Obviously not, or I would have joked about it. Oh, oh my. Um, so he actually was sexually attracted to his mother. Um, he had admitted it. Uh, at one point during um, some of the questioning, and, and this is why they didn't really use this as evidence or anything. They gave him the truth serum, which is not allowed anymore because 
there's no proof that it actually works. But under the truth serum, he gave interviews. He he told the doctor that he'd be he he'd been in bed with Frida or Rita. Um, he fondled his mother's breasts, and that their privates touched. Oh. He also at one point came on to his own brother, James. James did acknowledge that this had happened. And um, James had to fight him off vigorously to get him to stop. I just found a picture of, of his mother. Uh, looks like Meatloaf playing a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh my. That there's there's that this is why you listen to the whole episode to the very end, people. Mm-hmm. Cuz sometimes Amber Scott will whip up a fact that I had no freaking idea of. I don't know how I missed this. Or I always made like 12 of the Google results, Amber. I I like to do that because I I find the most obscure shit that way. Um, oh my gosh. But yeah, there was this whole thing about his Oedipus complex. And the only reason that he didn't brain his mother with the wrench is because he wanted a fucker. So yeah, oh, there was, there wow. was like a whole thing. Um, but, but yeah. And the only other mention of his father, I only had one mention of his dad, Sam. Sam had to pay $15 a month for Howie's upkeep to stay in the psych ward. Oh, wow. Damn it. That's a salty $15 I'd be paying. That's not like you paid child support from anything I could find. Yeah. Well, you also have to wonder, I mean, there could be a million reasons why a a marriage could could dissolve, but you also have to wonder if he saw some of this going on in his house and he was just like, I'm out. I'm out. Nope. Nope. And you know, it very well could be, but it it seems like they tried to bury this stuff a lot, but Howard seemed to be kind of sexually deviant from a young age. And they just kept, no, no, we don't talk about that in polite society. Read the Bible, collect your stamps. Yeah. That that (laughs) might explain some of the excessive Bible reading too. I'm just trying to imagine Amber's face as I dive into his early life and then his jobs and everything. And she's just sitting there like, you're not going to talk about this? <laughs> I know. That's why I was sitting on it. I was like, maybe maybe she didn't read that part. <laughs> didn't find it. Didn't see that. That's why we all do separate research is because things like this happen. That's the magic, people. The magic that is angering Scott and I so much right now because we missed the really horrifying, juicy stuff. I, just, I know. I just found like one of, uh, I'm not going to give the name out. But I just found one of Unra's relatives uh, through his mother, who has the same last name of the mother. And I looked at her and went, oh, she's kind of a cute girl. And then, oddly enough, like I see that li- a little bit later on, she's got a, uh, she's got a nose job. So her nose is not quite as large as it was. And she's also inmate HC 0817194514. <laughs> oh my mm-hmm. I'm just flashing back to before Amber gave us all those revelations when I said I, I was a chronological motherfucker yep <laughs> wow okay on that note <laughs> if you enjoyed this yeah I hope you enjoyed it I'm never going to get a full night's sleep again for the rest of my life Hope, you, hope, hope you're fucking entertained, listeners. <laughs> Come 
vampire social media where Scott will be posting apparently at all hours since he's never going to sleep again. And uh, check out, we'll have some media related to the case. I'll put up that uh, Barbara Stanwyck versus Rose Cohen picture and you guys can can be the judge there. And don't forget about um, my... Uh, other shows I'm on, Detectives by the Decade, you can check me out there. Amber and Scott do some voice work, and it's uh, very fun. And there's also short story, short podcast with friend of the show, Chris Garcia. So those are, uh, I, I've been just putting links in the show notes lately when I remember. So, And we have a shout out to new patron whose name I may or may not get right. I can do the first name, Sean. Hi, Sean. Last name. Hi, Sean. Ames. Uh, Ames. I'm. I'm at a loss. I'm a mess. So. Hey, Sean. <laughs> We're just gonna go with hi, Sean. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the Patreon. And if you would like your own shout out, you can do the Patreon that I talked about at the top of the show. You can also do a one-time donation via PayPal. That is our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com over on PayPal. And we'll also give you a shout out on the show. You just miss out on the fun bonus stuff that you get over on the Patreon that I'm sure Sean and our other patrons are enjoying right now. The bonus so, stuff is the best stuff. It, there's some good stuff there and there's some even like i said some even more good stuff coming up and then one last thing don't forget merch christmas is coming gifts for your favorite true crime fan over at oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com it says there's you do got to click a thing because it's, a couple of the designs are not safe for work because they have weapons and the word sex in them it's our show what do you expect so I mean, I called myself a chronological motherfucker a minute ago. So go ahead and take a look at what we have to offer there. It's all kinds of different items and different designs related to the show that you might just like or your friends might just like. So that is all of my bullshit. And uh, what are we doing this weekend? It's Saturday night because we didn't record on Thanksgiving. I'm just I fucking recuperating. That's it. I am uh, quarantining and working and homeschooling. Yikes. And drinking quite a lot. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I am getting ready for uh, finally a new couch. Our 15-year-old couch will be leaving the house and the new couch will be entering the building. And I'm very excited to have a thing I can sit on in my living room because I think just looking at our old couch at this point makes my back hurt just no, i can be in another room and i know that thing exists and i'm like oh god my back so yeah it's, it's aggravating my already bad back issues so i'm very excited and hopeful that the new couch is comfy because we didn't get to sit on it so i don't know but yeah well, i life. hope it's awesome i know it's already beautiful so Thank hooray you. i'm very excited it's been a it's been a long couch journey that we've had so so yeah, that is our episode for this week. Thank you, as always, so much for joining you. We appreciate our listeners so very much. Go tell a friend, by the way, if you enjoy this podcast. Share the love. Share our filthy words, which we thank you, as always, for listening to. Bye. 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 My sources this week are Meyer Berger on the New York Times, Patrick Sauer on Smithsonian Mag, IMDb, Find a Grave, NorthJersey.com, Barbara Boyer on the Philadelphia Inquirer, Wikipedia, David Zimmer and USA Today, 
BibleGateway.com. That's a first for us, I think. And Philly.com. Very well might be a first. (laughs) My sources for this week are WeirdNewJersey.com, SmithsonianMag.com, Murderpedia.org, Military.Wikia.org, and Wikipedia.org. My sources this week are wikipedia.org, smithsonianmag.com by Patrick Sauer, and murderpedia.org. 